Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Welcome everybody for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. Today we are joined by Natalie Kelly, who is global growth consultant, author of the book, Take Your Company Global, and 20 plus years of experience in B2B marketing. So much to learn from you. I'm so excited to dive in. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. Lovely to be here. Okay. So I know we're going to dive into obviously global marketing, but before we go into that, if you could tell me how you got into marketing in the first place, what was your, your journey and path to marketing? Yeah. So I was always on the content creation side. I started my first blog in college, which I should be proud and not embarrassed to say it was in the 1990s when blogs were just first starting. Really. Yeah. <laughs> I, my very first job after college was at AT&T and I published a newsletter. I worked for an internal division of the company based in California and that was again content creation and targeted marketing for that for that particular group internally and then i started working in product development at another company and i had to basically take the products to market and so i had to develop all the marketing materials and because i was young back then they were like oh web stuff you take that because you're one of yeah. these who understands websites and cms you know content management systems so i did that for a while and then I moved into a market research firm where I did a lot of market research. I became the yes. chief research officer there. And then I built out marketing for a tech company called Smartling. Stayed there for a couple of years. And then I moved to HubSpot where I became VP of marketing. <laughs> Thank you. We all love HubSpot. <laughs> yeah. And that was a very special place to work. I worked there almost eight years and worked mostly on the international side of the business, helping us move into new markets. So that's my experience with B2B marketing. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited to dive into that and everything you did at HubSpot. It is true. I think when we hear somebody has a background at a company like Salesforce, HubSpot, like one of those big brands that just had exponential growth and you were there for over almost eight years. So that's, there's just so much to unpack there and what you saw and experienced that helped shape your career. We'll get into it. Thank you. <laughs> so let's dive into international and global B2B marketing. I read something that you said, I think this was on your website, but if you have a website or social media presence, you're already global. So I love that. I was like, oh, that's plus <laughs> already there. So what can you explain this? Like, what does this mean? And what is the, the next step, I guess, from there? Yeah. So I'm glad that quote resonated with you. <laughs> I think in the past, companies used to set up operations in a new country and then figure out, okay, what are the best ways to go to market in that country? Well, today, with more channels being global from day one, including usually your website traffic, including any social channels that you're on, even things like if you're you know, launching in an app store, a lot of the channels, because everything is digital now, they are by default global. So you can actually go global from day so one. And so things have kind of reversed. It used to be you would look at the channels after you had decided to go into a market. Now 
you can use those channels to determine which markets you might want to increase your presence in. So it's more about intensifying your presence in different local markets than it is launching in a new channel. It's channels you probably already have. Now there could be new yeah. ones that you don't have yet <laughs> as well, but it's slightly different how it's evolved as everything has become more digital in nature. Yeah. It's so interesting because you're right. I have in the past companies and current company, you explore, well, I'm going to take a step back. I feel like I, I often working for us based companies, they want us to focus on us, Canada, like North America or English speaking countries. It could expand to, but it's kind of focused, but I love removing those barriers just to put it out there and explore where there is interest that you're not thinking about. And I have seen like once I do that and I take a look at who's coming and who's converting and which countries, you see what countries you can put more budget behind on ad spend or put more efforts and or shows, sponsorships, et cetera. So it's, you're right. Like you see that that global exposure can give you a hint as to what avenues to go down, which countries to strengthen your presence in. It's interesting. Exactly. Those signals can be really helpful for marketers, especially in the early stages of building a brand and building your demand and, you know, figuring out what motions really work. I would also say there's a flip side to it of some companies actually lean too much into those signals and actually make investments that might not be the best for their business. Because Ooh. for example, a lot of companies will see if they're in English only, they'll see a lot of traffic coming in from one country, like maybe Malaysia or India or a country where there might be a lot of English speakers, but it's a very large population. And so they'll say, oh, there's incredible product market fit in India or <laughs> you know Malaysia or the yeah. Philippines or Singapore. And it might not actually be the case that they have product market fit. It might just be that they're doing a great job with content on a topic that is not that competitive in that market. And so therefore they're luring in some traffic, but it's hard to help everyone understand that you have to think through beyond just acquisition into you know all the other parts of the funnel, because if you're bringing in traffic that ultimately doesn't convert or perhaps it does convert, but then you can't retain that business. The lifetime Ooh. value of that customer might be really low compared to a customer that is a better fit for your business. So I like to help marketers think through that because a lot of times it's like, oh, I got to hit my, my traffic goals. I got to hit my lead, you know, SLA for sales. Oh yeah. But also it's important to think through, are those the types of customers that you really want long-term, do you have the right pricing for them? Can they actually yeah. afford the packaging, you know, the way that you have it to, is the value really there for them? You know, is it a good fit for that market? Can you accept their currency? Can you accept their local forms of payment? All those different things, because yeah. often marketers will invest so much money in top of funnel stuff because of these cues and signals they see. And then yes. later it doesn't convert for different reasons marketers might've hit their goals, but does the business really hit theirs? So it's important to kind of connect the dots on these things. That's so interesting. It's kind of the follow through, right? So not being misled by these top of funnel metrics and traffic and getting ex too excited about that when you don't have perhaps the infrastructure to succeed with those clients or potential customers. Exactly. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. 
What do you see a lot of companies not thinking through? Like just to dive a little deeper into that point, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned pricing. So I think, tell me if I'm wrong here. I think some companies change pricing by country. Like obviously it can, they can change the currency and payment there, which is a whole nother thing to think about processing Mm -hmm. the payment, but the actual pricing and costs varying other, other, A, let's dive into that. If you could tell me a little insight on those two, but also, is there any, are there any other points that companies just don't think through when, and kind of make a mistake when they try to go global? Yes, yes, absolutely. So there is a lot to think through on the pricing and packaging side, and even just the currency and payment side. I think a lot of companies, especially US-based ones, do just decide to only sell in US dollars and only take certain forms of payment that are common in the US. Then they wonder why, oh, the bounce rate is so much higher for the customers coming, you know, in credit card bounce rate or payment transaction failures and things like that for from certain countries because they that's a lagging indicator that they didn't optimize for those things up front. And that's okay. Sometimes that's how you grow and you just happen to get that traffic and you learn along the way. But to answer your question, I think it's because they haven't thought of those things and they didn't really have a strategy for that country that they have to be reactive. It's much better to be proactive so that you can say, oh, we know that that is a good market because we can capture interest there. We know that they like this. We've done our market research. I have a little bit of a bias here because I come from a market research background, but I would say the number one thing companies don't do is they don't do any market research and they assume the halo effect will be much bigger than it is. So they think, oh, all we have to do is just translate our website or let's just translate this ad. Let's just adapt this small piece of content and it should work in that language or in that country. That's actually not a very good use of money. (laughs) It's not a good use of budget. What I really prefer for companies to do if they have the patience to slow down a little (laughs) is to just talk to the customers, (laughs) find out what they really value, make sure before you invest a single dollar in any programs, any campaigns, talk to the customer. It's my number one piece of advice because if you don't talk to the customer, you're going to probably just replicate a lot of stuff that you did in your home market. Yes. It may be effective, but what you might be missing is something that's even more effective. It's the opportunity cost. You know, if you just say, oh, okay, we do these Facebook ads and they work really well. Let's just scale that into five countries. Let's just localize, you know, let's do that. Okay. Easy. But what if you could have done something that was half the cost and generated twice the demand but you missed it because you never asked the customer, where do you go to find information about our product? Who do you talk to? For example, a lot of local markets that are very small have communities and you could just ask them, what association do you belong to? You might get twice the number of customers by doing an event with that association in that local market rather than sitting back and watching all your Facebook ads run and get the data. It's sometimes too easy to sit in a chair behind a screen and watch the data and not actually talk to the customer. And I think that's really becoming a risk for a lot of B2B marketers these days is like, let's not just look at the usage and look at the patterns, look at the CTRs and all that. Let's actually talk to the customer more and find out what they need. You know, yeah. I think that's the big missing link, not just for international stuff, but kind of in general. <laughs> everything. It's yeah. true. Especially the past couple of years, it seems like everything is just faster and we're 
every year more and more impatient Mm -hmm. and we need to go, go, go and get results now, 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 yesterday. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I feel you there. I'm a big advocate of, I agree, asking clients, where do you spend your time, right? That is my number one question. I love to just find out what communities they're in, what social platforms they're on, anything. Like, do they listen to podcasts? Do they go to webinars? Like all of that info. Cause it's, you're right. It's gold to just direct you if there's any patterns or even if there's not patterns, like trying those and testing things out, right. Wherever some of them spend their time, but it, it gives you a starting point. <laughs> it's so important. And it's just, I would say it's even more important outside of the U S than in the U S because Uh, large homogenous market with one language. Primarily you can reach almost everybody in English. Obviously you, there's lots of other languages spoken here. Depends on what you're selling. Depends on, you know, your business model. But when you go into other countries, you can't use the same strategies in many cases because every market is slightly different. And so just assuming like, Oh, well, TikTok, you know, this is working for us and the, and it's global. So let's just use it everywhere. I'm a fan of finding those points of leverage that you can use across markets, but you also need to think about what you do that's different. So like, if you're going to have like an 80, 20 strategy, like 80% of our bets will be consistent across geos, maybe 20% we leave for experimentation, or maybe it's 50, 50, depending on how much autonomy you want to give, you know, to regions, but Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot to that. (laughs) So true. And you're right. I didn't even think of that, that how research becomes exponentially more important when you go into new markets and new geographical markets and locations. Cause especially when you don't know about that, that market yourself and there's social networks that we've never, or I haven't heard of. Right. So if I was going out there and I just think, okay, LinkedIn is going to work because it always does, but maybe they don't spend their time on LinkedIn. So well, also even just the logistics, like if you're an English speaking marketer trying to target, say yes. France, how are you going to even know what to search for when you're identifying which LinkedIn categories and groups to target? How are you going to know that acronym that all of your customers belong to that one association locally? And that's where they gather and that's where they get their information. That's where they are influenced. You won't even be able to determine that if you don't talk to the customer, because there's no way you can even search for that unless you speak French and know the market. Like there's just certain things that you can't easily find out yourself without talking to customers. So yes, (laughs) it becomes very important. Mm -hmm. Where do we begin if we're, let's say we don't have customers yet in a particular market, but we see that there's interest in that area, or we just see potential and we want to enter that market where do we begin with research or how do we conduct Mm -hmm. research there? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things to ask, even before you do any research is what is the goal? You know, what are we trying to do? And with marketing, you know, it, it really depends on like what the ultimate business goal is. Like, are we trying to launch a new product in this market? Are we simply trying to grow top line revenue or like a lot of companies right now, are we trying to achieve profitable growth? Like, are we looking to maybe find some markets that might be cheaper for us to target with assets that we already have, with campaigns that we already have? In that case, I would advise looking at English speaking markets, perhaps that maybe accept the same currency or accept US dollars or US dollar friendly. Depends on what you're selling, of course. But it's important to think about like, what is the overall strategy? And using your international strategy 
and your international marketing campaigns to support that overall strategy. Because I think what happens a lot of times is marketers are caught and they're said they're told, okay, we need this much demand, we need this much, you know, th- these this number of leads because we know that they converted this rate. Sales team needs more, <laughs> more leads, more opportunities. Okay, so marketers, Always. where can I get them? Where can I get them? Mm-hmm. Kind of frantically, yes. it's important to be able to take a step back and actually think, okay, what if I got fewer leads, but they were higher quality and monetized better, and conversion rate is higher. Like I don't just want to bring in leads to bump up my number to short term show the SLA or my sales team is going to get mad and say the quality stinks, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't, you know, artificially plump up that top line number using international, which is tempting. A lot of companies want to do that. Like, look at all this traffic from India. Even if we only convert X percent, it's going to deliver this many leads. You're not thinking but what happens if the sales team can't sell to them? What happens if they can't monetize the way our others do? Because, oh, we don't have yeah. local support in that market. Oh, they can't contact sales in their time zone or contact support or get help. You know, yeah. so I think it's really important to first think, what's the overall business goal and how do I use international or do I use international as a strategy? Because another thing I've often told people which is funny as an international business advisor to say, stay domestic. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go global <laughs> because they're like, well, we already have all this traffic. We already have, I'm like, you're not operationally prepared to, to do that. Ah. A faster yield on your investment. If you stay focused in this market. And sometimes I'll look at their data and see, Oh, actually, have you thought about intensifying in this segment and not going outside the U S because yeah. it looks like there's a lot more low-hanging fruit here that you can just leverage everything you already have and not have to worry about international yet. So yeah. even though I'm a fan of international, I often am telling companies, no, you don't want to localize your website into 10 languages yet. No, you don't want to launch that campaign yeah. in Spanish just because your, spa- your salesperson speaks Spanish. Like, you yes. know, <laughs> that's the kind of I've thing. I've seen that before. Yep. <laughs> startups, you know, you'll see that a lot yeah. where people are hungry to find opportunity and they will be reactive. And I'm okay with that to a degree, but yeah. just so long as you're not going to make decisions that lead to downstream consequences, meaning that, you have to pull out of a market or you have to divest later in things that you spent years trying to build. That's way more painful. So, so true. Are there, there's so many questions that are popping up for me as I'm, as (laughs) I'm hearing you speak. One question, if we could go a little deeper than you've already touched on is what are some other indicators that a company is not ready to go global? And it, it also, it sounds like you're not and not to minimize this at all, it's huge. You're not just an international market expert at entering these. It's you're a kind of a market expert, right? So entering <laughs> new markets because yes. you're telling certain companies if they're not ready to go international, but they can enter this market or strengthen this market. So interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about growth. I mean, I think the signs that they are ready or aren't ready. You know, I think the biggest sign that they're not ready is that they can't answer the question when I ask, why do you want to go global? Or why do you think you need? Ah. If they don't have a real reason, or the reason is kind of a, not a great one. (laughs) Then an example of a not a great one would be, oh, this, you know, this person that works here did that in a prior company. Ah. Because, okay, it's a different product 
different set of criteria, different strategy. That's yeah. not a good reason. Like, or a board member says, oh, India is, and nothing against India. I love India. I don't, I don't know why I yeah. keep mentioning India as an example. <laughs> but like, oh, Brazil, they, they had a great experience in Brazil. So therefore we should go there. Uh, not sure that is actually the best strategy just because one person thinks it is. Yes. Even if it's the CEO, you know, sometimes it's like they're being pushed by an investor or a board member to do something that might not actually be the best way to grow. For me, it's not only about international growth, it's about what is the best growth strategy for your business. So that's the number one question is, why are we thinking about doing this? <laughs> like, why do we yeah. think this is a good idea? And then I kind of can uncover okay, is that the right thing to do? Maybe there's some other things you could do instead. Maybe you want to wait. Another big question yeah. is, do you have the attention span and the resources to do it right? Because a lot of companies feel like, oh, we'll just do the short-term thing. Yes. But when you go into a new market, it's actually a big commitment. Yeah. You can't do that if you have too much going on, on your in your business. At HubSpot, yeah. our founder, one of our co-founders and CEO for a long time, Brian Halligan, wrote a great article about this for Harvard Business Review in which he talked about intentionally not going international for mm. one of the yearly priorities that we did because strategy is all about making choices. And he knew that if we had too many strategic bets, we wouldn't be able to succeed at all of them. So everybody was pushing for international pushing and he yeah. himself wanted to go global and do more with international, but he actually decided to hold off on that. And he made it an intentional omission in our strategy. Wow. So we would not keep coming back and say, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? When are we going to open our yeah. Europe office? So I think that's really important to have the maturity to know when to say no to things. That's really hard yeah. in this economy because <laughs> everybody's like, do what I there's a lot of frantic yes. chaos at the moment, in, especially so in tech. So it's hard to have that ability to not be overly reactive. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. I know frantic is just such a good word for 2023. I think marketing, <laughs> it does feel like everyone's just like, what's working? Let's try this. Let's try that. It's so interesting that he put, I'm going to try to find that HBR article because that's so interesting that he, he didn't want it to seem like it was an oversight, right? That we're not going international, even though everyone is talking about it, but it's intentionally not doing so because it would distract from these other goals that the company had. So maybe the next year or the following year, it would be the right time to pivot to international growth. Yes. That's one of the most brilliant things that we had at HubSpot was we had a framework for strategic planning and it always included omissions. Like what are we intentionally that. not focusing on? That way you can have clarity for the rest of the team that, hey, I know this is an important thing lots of people are talking about, but we're just not going to do it this year. It helps cut down on the noise, cut down on the chatter, and it's clear and transparent to people that here are some things we're not going to do. Sorry, not everybody yeah. gets their way. We have to focus. <laughs> yeah, can't do everything. Right, but it's it's a nice tool to just communicate, here's what we're doing, but also here's what we're not focused on. So it gets even more clear for people. I love that. I might start adopting that because it's true. You, If you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing, right? Like you move everything this far instead of a couple things this far. So you have to focus. 
I do that in my life. I use it in my life too. Here are my omissions. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to do that. That's not this year, maybe some other time, but yeah, to make those strategic omissions is something I apply. That's such a good idea. (laughs) Great timing too, because I'm putting together my 2024 goals, right? And it's always what I want to accomplish this year, like personal health, right? All the family work, of course, like all of these different goals in different sectors, but I never put what I'm not going to distract myself with this year. I'm so adding that. I love that. Yes, because when you divide up life, and I I have a little framework I use I can share with you if you want to share it with your listeners. Yeah. If you divide up the things that matter to you every year, I try to just pick three, three areas. Mm. And within that, only only one real meaty objective because I can't focus on more than that. Yeah. Or I wouldn't achieve any of them. But yeah. I, we have all these things like, oh, we want to be more involved in our community or, oh, we want to spend oh, more yeah. time with friends or want to do more with my family, mm-hmm. improve my career, improve my health. I only pick three of those every year. I can't That's do more than that at a time because I want to make big progress in a few things versus yes. have too many goals and spread myself too thin. The peanut butter spread effect where you just, you know, yes. <laughs> of the things that matter. So, <laughs> so funny, Natalie, you do not want to see my list. I mean, it, it's in a Google, what is it? A Google keep doc on my phone yeah. uh-huh. and it's like, you, you can scroll. <laughs> so <laughs> it's definitely not three. Maybe I'll, I'll go the Natalie approach this year and focus in on three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen out wide, but then you have to choose and call the rest. Yes. It's hard. It's hard. quick focus. (laughs) It is, but you're right. We do that at work. So I I should apply that personally too. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I also want to dive into, this is a big thing. When I think international growth, I always wonder, do you need to have a local expert? Do you need to have a local office or how do you work on that side? Or when is it time to have a physical presence versus you can do it all from whatever country you're in? Yeah. So most businesses eventually, if they're going to scale beyond a certain point, they do end up needing people in country. And it's mostly because of two things, one time zone and two language. (laughs) So you can have people in the U.S. selling to people in Australia, but they're going to either have to flex on time zone quite a lot or just those customers won't get as good of a service and coverage as U.S. customers will. So you can also have, you might say, I only want to have people who speak English from Germany interact with my business. And so therefore I'm never going to hire anybody who speaks the language. I'm never going to localize anything, but then you're missing out on the vast majority of the market. (laughs) So you have choices as to whether or not you think it's worth expanding and opening up an office. What I will say now, there's so many models with all these different companies like Deal and Oyster and Remote and Globalization Partners. All of those companies allow you to easily hire people in other countries. And so even like kind of on a contractor basis, you can have, even if you're a very small business, you can have people in those local geographies. So it's totally possible now. I think it all really just depends on the business and what you're selling. You know, is it a high touch model that requires a lot of humans? Is it low touch? If so, maybe you don't need to do that as early in the life of your business. But generally, as you scale, as you hit and unlock higher tiers of revenue, you're probably going to need people in country who speak the language 
at some point as you grow. We certainly saw that at HubSpot. <laughs> we definitely yeah. started out when I got there. We had about 20% of our revenue that was right after the IPO was from outside the U.S., but we really didn't have a lot of employees outside of the U.S. at that point. So over time, you know, we grew that, opened up more offices as our customer base diversified geographically. Then we had to make more investments there. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up too, because I definitely want to dive into your your HubSpot experience. So spanning seven, eight years there, how did you see and lead HubSpot to grow internationally? And were there any lessons you learned? I'm sure that that's a yes. What <laughs> lessons did you learn in that experience? Yes. So first of all, I'll say it wasn't just me. Uh, you know, I had international, my title from early on, but it was the whole company yeah. operating globally and learning how to operate globally. I put a lot of the lessons that I learned along the way from my HubSpot experience, as well as other jobs that I've had in the past into my new book. <laughs> it's um, this book, Take Your Company Global. <laughs> Love it. Uh, yeah, it's, got, it's called The New Rules of International Expansion. I talk about a lot of those topics. I think I learned so much, you know, at HubSpot growing from where we were just post IPO up through being 1.7, 1. whatever their market cap is today, billions of dollars. Yeah. It's become a huge, huge company, tech giant with, I think now 7,000 plus employees. When I got there, it was around a thousand. Wow. So yeah, we grew a lot in that time, you know, basically like replicating the size that we were every year that I was there. And wow. Yeah. And most of that growth was coming from our international business. So what's fun, if you get the chance to work on the international side of the business is it feels like a startup over and over in every new country you launch in, because you're kind of, you have a landing team, which is kind of like your founding team in that market. They're building that business in each country and region. And it's fun. It's exciting. And it comes with yeah. a lot of growth. The challenge is, of course, you add complexity whenever you're adding new markets, adding new languages, adding new geos. So of course it comes with the natural tensions of adding complexity into a business and untangling all the knots that are created along the way, which was a big part of my job. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder, did you have to do a lot of traveling or because of just how things are nowadays, were you able to, what's the, the word for this, like orchestrate a lot of it from the US and from where you were? Yeah, I did travel a lot, but I actually traveled less in this job than I did in prior jobs. Wow. Even though I had a highly global team. So I had people in a lot of countries, Ireland, Germany, Japan, <laughs> Singapore, Scotland, wow. uh, Spain, you know, various different countries. And in the early days, so before the pandemic, I, when I was working at HubSpot, I had one of the first global remote teams at HubSpot because of the nature of what my teams were doing. I had to have people in country. And so we had global remote team meetings all the time back before the pandemic. So we were very comfortable with remote work before the pandemic and yeah. not much changed in our work lives. Home life was yeah. another story. <laughs> yeah. So that actually was a motion that we had already built. And I will say HubSpot was ahead of the game in hybrid work and remote and flex and all of that way before the pandemic hit, the company was already on that path. And so thankfully we were able to adjust and pivot pretty quickly in the pandemic. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's good. So that's great because then even less travel, obviously the travel kind of came yeah. to a halt for a while. Yeah. I'm curious because 
how does this work? And it probably is another one of those, it depends, right? Type mm-hmm. answers, because every mm-hmm. company is going to be different and the strategy will change from company to company. But for instance, at HubSpot, was it very much like the HQ determined the strategy and then each office had to kind of figure out how that would work or what needed to change in their country for their their go-to-market? But it kind of started with this, this is what HQ is doing and how do we need to evolve that? Or was it both? Was it bi-directional of like this go-to-market strategy worked in Australia, maybe we can apply that to the U.S. or Mm -hmm. if you could go into that a little more. Yeah, it's a great question. So for a lot of years, I reported into the international operations side of the business, and it was my job to try to make sure that we would infuse the local priorities and the local views into the global operating plan. So that is a motion that we started to build when I first joined, I created this meme (laughs) called Global First. And the idea was we want to think globally from the beginning and have the local viewpoints and the local perspectives infused into the design and into the strategy and into the frameworks and into whatever we're doing. We want to make sure to capture local input early on in the process. So this whole notion of Global First is something that People still use there and it became, I think people forgot where it came from, which is a good thing. I just wanted people to use that term and know that that's important for us to do. Because when I arrived, it was the global part of the business wasn't that big. Yeah. Maybe 40 million in ARR. And then over time, you know, it's like close to a billion in revenue from the international side. So making sure that that global first piece was there in terms of mindset was very important because the reason that a lot of these companies, like you mentioned, will devise a strategy in their headquarter location and then roll it out to the rest of the geos, that's a very ethnocentric, I would say, way to operate because you're just kind of blindly in your own zone and you're not thinking globally. Now, if you have executives involved in that process who already have views on all the local markets and understand what's happening in those markets, good relationships, good communication, then they're probably able to create a strategy, even if it's created in your HQ country that incorporates all of these pieces. So it's a little complicated to explain, but we built that into our operating model. And I think it was very successful because we unlocked a lot of rapid growth in a lot of countries. And while I was there, we set up our Japan office. That was the first one that I launched. We set up our German office and we set up our Colombian office in Bogota. And then we set up our office in Paris and also entities around the world in different countries too, which might not have a physical office, but we have maybe groups of employees in those countries. And that was after we already had our Ireland, Singapore, and Australia offices. So yeah, going into these other countries where we had other languages was kind of a new challenge because it's easier when it's just English. <laughs> but when you have to do everything yeah. in language and everything in country, it gets more and more complicated. So <laughs> do you find that is it kind of always the best strategy to start with the same, any countries that speak the same language. I do see that as being where most people start, like from the US, of course, US and Canada get grouped together and then UK, like some UK and 
Ireland, right? Like you kind of pick different English speaking countries, although it's also becoming blurred. I find this is very subjective, but I find when I travel now, almost sadly, I got to say, everyone speaks English. Like Mm -hmm. everywhere I go, it seems like English is so much more prominent now, which is helpful since I sadly only speak 1.5 languages. But (laughs) it's also sad because I'd want that incentive to like try to speak the local language. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting. It's true. I mean, you can get by with English to a certain point in a lot of markets. It just depends on what you're selling. To your point, even people who speak English, when you go to Europe and English is kind of the the common language that people are using to communicate about certain things. So like if you go to a restaurant, your waiter, if you're in Paris, might be able to talk to you about the menu in like five languages. But if they're buying a product from you or they're buying for their business, you know, the restaurant owner, what language do they want to buy in and be sold to their native language? That's so true. consumer products often, it just depends, you know, like a lot, it's more about trust there. Like people might not want to click on a website if they're not sure that, oh, my credit card is not going to be accepted or the, you know, it's going to bounce or my payment won't go through, or maybe they don't accept my local payment. The whole set of things you need to think about for B2C marketing are very different there. But B2B, it's actually, you can get by often in English more with B2B marketing than you can with B2C. But the types of things that companies want are different. So like you're often with B2B marketing, marketing to a team, not just one person. You know, this whole concept of the team-based persona and like now we have to think about who are all the different profiles and roles involved in the decision-making process and how do we market to all of them and the different stages that they come into the buying process. So it's very common, for example, that the person who signs a deal for like B2B enterprise software, they might speak English, but your users might not if you're selling a tech product. So then maybe you don't need to, you know, adapt any of your sales and marketing materials for English but what about all the customer success components and the support components? So it's becoming more common for companies to have like, maybe they go to market in English, but their support content might need to be in five, 10 languages because yeah. the buyer is disconnected maybe from the user, but I would argue that's not even a good thing. And sometimes the users are getting more involved. They can actually block a deal if you don't have certain content available yeah. in the language. So you know, when companies say, well, our buyers never ask for anything in their language, it could be that you're losing deals because of that. And you don't even know it. You don't even know. Going to your website and seeing, oh, they don't support this language. So therefore you never even get to the table. Yeah. So understanding how the buyer thinks where language plays a role is really important because you might actually not get very much growth out of it. If you just think, oh, we can do everything in English. But it's important to figure out what needs to be in other languages because it's often not everything. (laughs) You can't do everything at once. So yeah, mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought like the the go to market plan and like the website and content and all of that. Like the marketing side, there's so many layers to think about that you've uncovered for me today. Mm -hmm. Even beyond, I also feel like I have more questions now, which is eye opening. Is the legal side of things, right? Like contracts that they're signing, do those need to be in their language? And then if you don't speak that, it just seems, and aside from that, like what is, what, 
legal contracts are sound across borders. I I, I don't know enough of that information. So you have oh, to bring in an expert, I imagine. It gets very complicated. Now, some companies will say, we only will agree to sell with a US-based contract and it's in English. Another step beyond that is you contract with our US entity, but we provide you with a courtesy translation. That's what we did at HubSpot for many years. But then when you want people to contract out of a different entity in a different country for tax reasons, revenue recognition, all of that stuff, then you might have to have a separate master service agreement, separate kind of, that will specify which entity you're contracting with. And because every country has different laws, you might have to have slightly different verbiage in your legal contracts to reflect that or, at HubSpot, we tended to try to have a universal contract that would reflect all the different local needs to the degree possible so that it would require minimal yeah. changes to the contract because B2B selling often requires legal review. And yeah. you have to think about like, depending on what you're selling, if you're selling especially large enterprise deals, you might need to have a local commercial lawyer who's on contract who supports you like on a retainer basis with helping your sales team get through those steps. So it does get quite complicated. That's why I'm saying it doesn't matter what you're attracting top of funnel sometimes because you might not be prepared operationally to deal with all the downstream stuff. But a lot of organizations kind of learn that the hard way and they're like, oh, okay, we've never done this before. How do we adapt and how do we figure it out? It's okay. Everybody has to do some of that but I like to get people to think through it a little bit further in advance so that they're yes. not shocked. <laughs> yeah. Do you cover this in your book too and take your company global? Do you cover like what questions you might not be thinking about or why you might not be prepared or what else can we expect and who who is this for? Obviously B2B marketers who are in this position, but is it also founders and start yes. thinking about it early? <laughs> It's for anybody who's working in a global business who needs to help the global business grow across borders. I do a lot of the things we've talked about today are in the book. There are checklists in the book, like things you need to Mm. think through, even a basic process of how to enter a new market. I have all that in the book. I also have tips and things to avoid. I have a framework for how to pick markets. <laughs> I have a lot yeah, of stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dense book, but I hope it's written in a way that is accessible and easy to understand because that's one of the hardest parts about working in something like this is it, it is complex and everybody wants things to be easy and simple. I try to break it down and make it easy to understand, but there are layers like the word that yeah. you use. There's like layers. Once you unpack that, it's like, Oh, there's another and another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So interesting that I feel like, I mean, obviously this is why you wrote a book and I'm sure the book doesn't, it is impossible to cover everything. Right. So I feel like we could have an entire series. You should start a podcast <laughs> if you haven't already. Do you have one? I, I didn't see I one, but no, I don't. You I, should. I, Thank you. I feel like there's so much to dive into, like like all of these layers, right? There's so much content to cover here that you can just go so deep into. I want to pick your brain for months. <laughs> well, I do have a newsletter. It's fascinating. Uh, my yes. Making global work. And in the newsletter, I am trying to cover all of these aspects beyond just what I have in the book because I want to provide people with examples and things that make it very real and actionable in their daily life. So yeah. Maybe I can't do a podcast right now, but I can at least have a weekly little bit of guidance that helps people on an ongoing basis, kind of a continuous 
<laughs> way to share that, that. that knowledge. Yeah. I will also link to all of this in show notes. So to your book, of course, to the newsletter, to your website, to your LinkedIn. So I'll link to, to all of that in show notes for all the listeners. But thank you. I would love to ask, there's, again, I want to pick your brain all day, but what is one thing if you were speaking to a B2B marketer that is in a position where they are about to go global for the first time and enter a new international market, what's one piece of advice from all of your experience that you would give that marketer? Talk to the customer, <laughs> number yes. one. Number two, if you have a local sales leader, become their BFF. <laughs> That's ah. very much in at HubSpot was making sure that our revenue teams were very tightly aligned and especially sales and marketing. We actually called it smarketing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I love that. Merge them together. And it's so true for those local sales leaders because often they are given the revenue target. They have a very hard job. The pressure is on their shoulders to meet those numbers. And it's so important for marketers to really be their best partner and their best teammate to really make sure yeah. they can be successful because they're often not just doing a sales job. They're often the de facto general manager of a local office. Yeah. They have a lot of other things yes. they have to deal with. So my advice is always support those local general managers surround them with, you know, we would call all the other teams, the surround sound essentially. Oh, <laughs> you know? I love that. But they are kind of holding the mic and they are on the stage and highly visible in their role to make those numbers. So I feel like yes. marketers are right next to them on stage. And we like to put marketers at the forefront at HubSpot. Marketing is a big part of our brand and what we do and our customer, obviously. So yeah. marketers and salespeople, have to be like that, you know, hand in hand. Lockstep, <laughs> for sure. And there's so much we can learn from them too, especially local on the ground, be it really on the ground or virtually on the ground, but they, they're the ones talking and kind of doing their own customer research in that area, right? So that's who you want to either use Gong or whatever video recording call software you have to pull all those insights and learn and learn and learn. Yes, absolutely. And I even, if you can spend time in person with customers, even better because nothing call. will help like shadowing them on the jobs that your product helps them with, your, your product or service, just yes. understanding their pain points and really knowing their reality is so important. Do you think that also, again, I'm going to go into more and more questions, but do you think it, when you're entering a new market, does customer advocacy become even more important than usual? So important. Yeah, we yeah. used to actually, you know, if you're selling a software product, you might even want to have your product team go on site and visit customers um. in local markets. We used to do something that we called customer empathy visits or customer empathy calls, where they would just, the whole goal of visiting or talking to the customers just to understand their reality and really understand yeah. like, their pain points. Because often the pain points might be around what we're selling, but they really play into the experience that they're having. And so having those customer empathy calls or empathy visits was pretty important. That was mostly on the UX research side yeah. that we did that, but I think marketers can do that. We also, on the marketing team, one of our local marketers did a secret shopper experience, like ah. as a customer who spoke another language to try to uncover all the different gaps in the experience in that language wow. an analysis and some video shares and things about like, here's where our French customers 
are not having the best experience that they, you know, and where we might need to do better. So I think even just getting close to the customer that way is also helpful. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's so smart. And you just gave me an idea for me to use that at my current company. So thank you. <laughs> the secret <laughs> shopping thing. I love that. Even for any kind of marketing, that's a great idea. Yeah. So interesting. Well, Natalie, thank you so much. I have a bajillion notes here. I will put a ton of links in, in show notes. But if anybody wants to, I'm sure you're going to have several reach out to you. But if any listeners want to reach out to learn more, where do you recommend they do so? Sure. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can also email me at natalie at borntobeglobal.com. LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to reach me. And that's where my newsletter is. So feel free to contact me there, add me as a connection, engage with me there. I'm always happy to make new friends and welcome new people into this topic. <laughs> Perfect. Mm -hmm. And get the book for sure. I'll put all the links in show notes. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your time, Natalie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jane. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you like the show, take a, a moment to refer to a friend, to like, rate, review it all. I get those reviews and it makes my day. I haven't gotten a bad one yet, so hopefully they're all good, but we'll see. Be honest. I appreciate it either way. So thanks everybody for, for listening and supporting the show. Thanks, Natalie. See you thanks, next time. Thanks, everyone.